This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Equity I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast where we help you learn to invest in 45 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividends so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name is Bryce and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this episode. I don't want to play favorites, but one of our favorite experts back on the show, the very first expert to come on Equity Mates, actually, all the way back in 2017. Yeah. Hopefully not the last. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is our great pleasure to welcome back Andrew Brown to the show. Andrew, welcome. Thanks, Bryce. Good afternoon, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> Good afternoon. For those who have just joined the show and haven't listened to any of Andrew's episodes, firstly, welcome to the journey of investing and equity, mates. Secondly, we suggest you seek out the interviews with Andrew because they are incredibly full of insight. And thirdly, Andrew is a highly experienced investor with a history of 35 odd years investing in the markets, has worked in Australia, London, New York, so pretty experienced and we're happy to bring him back to unpack sort of what has been going on since we last spoke to you, Andrew. When was that? Mid-crisis. Yeah, it was. Um, we spoke just before the crisis, really, and then, then we had a, uh, a quick chat during the crisis. Yes. I think right, right in the sort of epicenter of it. And since then, buy now, pay later has gone nuts. <laughs> Donald <laughs> Trump has. has gone more nuts and <laughs> the markets have just gone even more than us. Absolutely. <laughs> You're here to be the voice of reason on the show, Andrew. Sure. <laughs> but before we do, there's one piece of housekeeping. We're halfway through our build an ETF competition to build excitement around ETFs for our three-part series that we're going to be releasing in October. So if you haven't signed up uh, or if you haven't submitted your entries for the competition, think of an idea of an ETF that doesn't exist yet. Submit it for your chance to win $1,000. Then go to the Get Started Investing podcast feed and subscribe there because that's where we're going to announce the winners. And now, Andrew, I'm going to turn it to you. This whole competition is about coming up with an idea for an ETF that doesn't exist yet, but you think should. I'm going to put you on the spot. Do you have an idea for an ETF? Oh, I certainly do. Great. <laughs> you may remember in, get my year right, it's February 2018, when the VIX went nuts in the US. And you may remember there were a couple of products which were, one of which was done by Credit Suisse First Boston, and they were what were called inverse VIX ETFs. And what had been happening is people had been basically buying these inverse VIX ETFs, and because of the way the VIX works, the VIX had stayed really, really low, and these inverse VIX ETFs were basically just minting money for people. And you may have heard the phrase picking up sixpences in front of a steamroller. And that's effectively what these people were doing. And what happened is with these inverse VIXs, one day they were quoted at 99 and the next day they were zero. <laughs> okay, because the VIX went bananas. So my idea for an ETF is the inverse buy now, pay later ETF, <laughs> which is basically an ETF comprised of short positions in buy now, pay later companies. So basically, if, if these things go down, it will go up. And of course, if they carry on going up, it will fade away to nothing much at all. So I'm there a, you go. Inver a... An inverse BNPL. And, and of course, if you want to get really sexy, because most of these inverse products <laughs> They don't just have an inverse product. They have a three times yes. gear. Yeah, triple, yes. yeah. So, so uh, part B is the triple inverse <laughs> BNPL What would the ticker ETF. code be? Uh, the ticker code will be 
C R A S H. Crash. Nice. Nice. There you go. Well, that's a good one. I think we will be touching on the buy now, pay later sector later in this conversation. So let's not front run no. all of your opinions on the sure. buy now, pay later, but I'm sure people have a general idea of where that conversation is going to go. Yeah, there's some subtleties. About <laughs> it, so, yeah. so as Bryce said, we touched base briefly in the midst mm. of the crisis, but you know, a lot has happened since we last sure. really sat down and had a conversation. Yeah. So I guess if we start general, what's, what's happened? Right. How do you make sense of just everything going on over the last few months? Sure. It's not that hard to unpack, funnily enough. It may sound really strange, but it's not that hard to unpack. If you go back to February, uh, the market's actually topped out on the 19th of February. I'm going to really make reference to the S&P 500 in the US because that's been the key driver of other markets, yeah. to be blunt. Yeah. So not the Aussie market specifically. But the index really topped out there at uh, about uh, 3,400 or thereabouts. Started to see people just be a little bit wary about what was going on with the virus. And then that really started to gather steam, obviously, as we got into March. And you started to have this extreme volatility in March with you know, markets moving 7 8% a day you know, basis circuit breakers being invoked in the US virtually every day. And it really culminated on the 23rd of March, which is the real bottom of the market. And the bottom was really created by the Federal Reserve Board saying, we think the market for US treasuries is illiquid. And you are talking, US treasuries are the most liquid piece of paper on the planet. They are the piece of paper about which virtually every other instrument on the planet, bonds, you know, credit spread between your bond and, and the yield on a treasury bond. And equities, you know, it's the ultimate risk-free yield. So you put some kind of pricing mechanism above that into equities. And they were getting illiquid. So that's when the Fed really came in and said, you know, unlimited liquidity, you know, unlimited. And, you know, we will print money, we will do whatever, you know, it's not the whatever it takes, but it was just unlimited liquidity. That got the market to settle down a bit. And that wasn't surprising. But what was surprising, of course, was what happened after that was once we got into April, May and beyond, which is that the market just took off. Mm. And the reason the market took off with the benefit of hindsight is the fact that there are a whole bunch of stocks in the US that were really pretty much COVID safe. So the major technology companies, most obviously, the Apples, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Microsofts, some were categorically pro-COVID, so Netflix, most obviously. <laughs> and those kind of stocks took off and they've been repriced to the most astonishing degree. That's the astonishing bit. By way of example, if you go back to the end of 2018, Apple shares were trading on about 7.8 times their a value of their equity plus their debt, they have net cash obviously, uh, divided by their earnings before interest, tax, depreciation and amortisation, which is a mere $79 billion between you and I. <laughs> okay. Now, that those earnings are not moving. They're not going up. Yeah. Okay. What's happening is basically earnings for Apple for their products are coming down, but the earnings from services obviously are, are expanding quite rapidly. So you would expect the multiple of that $79 billion to expand a bit. Well, it's expanded a bit. It's gone from uh, about 7.8 to um, 24 and a half. Wow. Mm. Okay. And in essence, that's what's really gone on with the major technology companies to the extent that the big five tech stocks now make up over 21% of the S&P 500 yeah. Yeah. index because they've just so dramatically outperformed. If you want to see that in action, just Google equal weight S&P versus S&P. And you'll see that the equal weight S&P has lagged really dramatically. Mm. Equal weight just means that you'd put basically a, a dollar into each of the 500 companies yeah. uh, as opposed to the capitalization weightings, you know, where Apple obviously, you know, gobbles up the most. As part of our ETF competition, I've been behind the scenes lobbying to get some equal weighted ETFs into Australia. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, they do make a bit of sense, for yeah. sure. So that's been one of the most fundamental things. And so what you've got is you've got big tech has turned out to be COVID safe, as you you know you reason out. You don't need to be Einstein to work that out. And there's various other sectors, obviously, have just been decimated and have not really bounced to any great degree. So the COVID safe, it's dragged along a few other things, most obviously just bog-standard basic consumer products companies, mm. okay, you know, who've... You know, they had the same issue in the US we did. 
So, you know, you have a look at the stock price, something like Clorox, which makes bleach. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, so yeah. It's boring as for mm. years. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, it's up dramatically. When Trump tells you to inject it in your arm, that's oh, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But if you have a look, I mean, one of the most obvious things in the US market, for example, the most, the biggest laggard sector is financials, which is banks. Mm. So something like JP Morgan, just to give you an idea, they were 135 bucks pre, pre-COVID, let's call it. They got down to about 88 and they're still only 99. So they've bounced, but they've only bounced like 10%. And you can see that with Bank America, they were 35, they got as low as 21, they're still only 24. Is that because of the low interest rates? Absolutely and that right. Killed, yeah. yeah. Just for people who aren't too yeah. familiar with banking stocks, maybe if you can do a bit of a basics 101 to explain it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The best way to explain it is imagine the price of your cost of goods sold which in the bank's case is money, imagine the cost of it is zero. It really can't go below zero for a bank. It has done in Europe, I acknowledge, but let's let's just take that out of the equation. And as interest rates come down, the amount of money you can charge your customers comes down. So your margin gets squeezed, okay? So you're not really getting any cheaper money to, to lend on and the margin that you can lend it on out is getting squeezed. Your fees are getting squeezed because of competition. And because of the economic environment in the US and everywhere around the world, your propensity to lend is much less. Mm. Okay, we, You can see that in Australia. We can have all the JobKeeper in the world and people sort of sustaining themselves on it and you know, whilst the economy is obviously in, in a bad way, it's kind of, you know, it's sort of off the bottom. But the problem is banks are not going to lend you money if your income is JobKeeper. Yeah. And it's exactly the same in the US. So the volume of money these guys can lend out is reduced. And so the banks are making money out of securities trading mm, and particularly mm. bond trading and everything else. And that's not a big, yeah, that's, that, that's not a big multiple business, I'm afraid. Yeah. That's the broad reason why. Just a, a little off topic, and I know we've got a few things to get through and Alec wants to touch on Trump. Uh, I'm yeah. pretty keen. <laughs> Just sure. briefly, given that interest rates are so low and you mentioned uh, before, Andrew, the using, I guess, uh, your risk-free rate when yep. it comes to treasuries, how, how are you thinking and valuing stocks now given that your risk-free rate is essentially squat? <laughs> that, 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 is, that is a really interesting question, Bryce, because that, that is the fundamental break, if you will, between someone who would describe themselves as a growth investor and someone who's a value investor. Mm, mm. A growth investor now can ostensibly kind of say, well, my stock's worth infinity. Yeah. Because <laughs> you know, yeah. my, you know, my interest rate's zero. And so I mean, you've got to compensate for that with, with a higher equity risk premium. You know, in other words, you know, a, a bigger risk component mm. that you're using in a discount rate to discount back tomorrow's money to today's value. And that's not being done mm. quite clearly. People have adjusted discount rates down dramatically. That's the heart of the argument, you know, the Tina argument. There is no alternative. Mm, That's the heart of that argument. And the other issue is, I mean, you know, these very low rates are going to be around for quite some time. Yeah, if they're not, we're going to have a hell of a problem. Yeah. yeah. If if in trying to stoke inflation, central banks are too successful, oh, yeah. <laughs> that, that will be really painful. It will not be nice. And yeah, there are some people starting to sort of place some very kind of out of the money bets on that happening on inflation picking on, up. on inflation picking up i'm pretty cynical about it because i think the demand side of things just won't be there yeah. once yeah. you start taking government support out but there's a point of view for that but that no you've hit on the real issue bryce that if you will infecting equity markets people can justify particularly for companies that are growing yeah, they can justify any old valuation they want. Yeah. And so they don't bother with the valuation because it's too hard. And so what they're doing is they're focusing on the business model. You know, this is, this is a great business. These guys are really good at it, blah, blah, blah. And, and I mean, there's a myriad of examples of, in Australia, let alone a myriad of examples in the US. The biggest thing that it's doing is it's pushing out the time horizon over which you want to see a profit from the company that mm. you're investing in. So it may have a good product. It's not quite making money at the moment. 
but you think it will make money and you're quite happy to wait till 2025 for it to make money as long as the trend is, is moving in the right direction. And there's a whole sector in the US, the SaaS stocks. Mm. I mean, there's a proliferation of these things that are cash flow negative were it not for the fact they pay large slabs of compensation in stock. You know, if you if you turn that stock-based compensation into cash, they'd be in, they'd be in horrendous trouble. Mm. Um, and, of course, there's, there's plenty of companies in Australia in the kind of sexy growth theories doing a similar thing. Now, let me play devil's advocate for a moment. Isn't it good that the market is willing to be patient and let companies develop and make a loss for a little bit of time and, you know, fully mature? Like, isn't it good that investors are becoming more long-term in their thinking? Yes and no. In terms of yes, you know, just in, in essence, you've put the pro case for it, be more long-term in your thinking. But the extent to which you have to be long-term at these type of prices for companies is absurd mm. because what's happening is that you are going to create, if these companies have access to capital markets with what's ostensibly zero-cost capital, then they're going to become zombie companies. They're going to keep spending on marketing and other things. Yeah, and as we've seen, we'll touch on BNPL, but I, you know, I obviously don't want to obsess about it and <laughs> make it the, the only yeah, theme sure. of this broadcast. No, seriously. <laughs> I mean, there is no moat in BNPL. It's pretty obvious. But that's enabled, you know, every kind of, you know, Bryce pay and Ren pay and <laughs> Andy pay to, you know, hey, emerge, out, emerge, <laughs> emerge, emerge out of a cave. Yeah, yeah, and it's because there's basically been free access to capital for, you know, for basically a bunch of coders that, that have been able to code up a, a sort of instalment pay app and, and get some backers for it. Mm. I've got a thesis about buy now, pay later, and I'm interested to have that conversation with you, but we'll leave it till the end because yep. we will obsess about it. Yep. I want to come back to Bryce's original question mm. around discount rate and, yep. and tie that up. Yeah. We've spoken about how difficult it is given the risk-free rate of US treasuries is. Yeah next to naught. If I can ask a personal question and yeah. feel free to sure. answer generally, what are you using for your discount rate at the moment? Okay. Depends what sector I'm in, but I, I still want, if I'm an equity investor, I'm reckoning I need to get basically somewhere between a seven to 10% annual return. And depending on the risk in the business, I want much more than that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. What's remarkable, guys, is that the discount rate, if you will, for SaaS stocks, just, just as a generalization, is kind of you know pretty close to zero. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these companies actually make no, I mean, there is no cash flow to discount yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so, the, you know, you can just put a finger in the air. Of course, the alternative is when you start looking at other sectors, and I will touch on two today, okay, real estate and in particular retail real estate and oil, you know, the discount rates are enormous. Mm. They're gigantic. And so, in fact, the risk premium in those sectors is too big, mm. far too big in my opinion. I mean, the thing that we're going to get to in this is that the opportunity for things that are bombed out and underpriced versus things that are just extravagantly overpriced, we're in kind of April 2000. Mm. it's as good as it was then. Value investors then had a seven-year run, the like of which they've never seen in their lives before, versus growth investors who were just scrambling around in the dirt. For people who may not get the April 2000 reference... Tech wreck. Yeah. You're saying that the market was so top-heavy with tech stocks, but yeah. at the same time, there was a lot of opportunity in unloved sectors. Yeah. But surely the underlying conditions now for the stocks that are beaten up is completely different to that of 2000. Not necessarily. It depends what sectors you, that you're looking in. Okay. Hey, Trump said we'll have a vaccine by November, so... <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to mix different cycles because, you know, this the, where we are now I think has got real mixtures of the tech wreck, which was 99 into early 2000 and the peak in March 2000 when the dot-com bubble burst. And what you had, you had a whole bunch of other stocks. You, you, I mean, go back and read Warren Buffett's stuff from that time because everybody said, oh, this bloke's washed up and finished. <laughs> yeah, and then, of course, he performed the house down for the next few years. Yeah, you could see the same in Australia. I mean, I remember, you know, I was at Rothschild at the time. We were buying, we were buying really good Australian companies on P's of 11. 
Jeez, must be nice. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and of course they then, you know, some of these things just doubled inside six months. Yeah. And then, of course, you have 2008, nine, and there are some nice comparisons we can make with one or two things there. Different setup, obviously, mm. but certain value type things got absolutely smashed at that period of time. Well, you did mention retail and oil. Yeah, and I know there absolutely. are a couple of stocks in that sector. Yeah. So before we jump to Ren's no, let's, yeah. let's Trump, do that, yeah. this yeah, is an interesting conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just to give you an idea, I mean, in, in Australia, I mean, one of the biggest sectors in Australia, I mean, you may say Australia got away with, you know, with next to nothing in the GFC, okay? Of course, if you were an investor in REITs, real estate investment trusts in Australia in 2000, late 2007, you got absolutely smashed to pieces. And it virtually it was irrespective of which sector you were in, you know, whether it was retail, office or industrial. And some obviously bounced quicker than others. And what you found is that because all these trusts had too much debt in them, they had far too much debt. To give you an idea, I went back to some notes I had from March 2009 Okay, which was about the bottom of the sector. And the sector in Australia had a market value of $44 billion and it had debt of 88. Wow. Oh, wow. Okay, wow. so the, the debt to equity market value is two to one. Okay, and of course they were all out there frantically raising money as quickly as they could. So you look at GPT, for example, which is a big, you know, big REIT. You know, GPT had to have two jumbo rights issues to write the ship. And if you're an investor in 2007, you're still you're still underwater. Yeah, wow. Okay, you're underwater 13 plus years later. Gee. But one of the things I use to look at is REITs are great because they really stabilise your mind about what the hell investing is all about. And the reason they stabilise your mind is because there is a real asset underneath the REIT. You know, it's an office block or a mm -hmm. shopping centre or... A, or a, or a tin shed, as I call them, in you know, industrial units. And obviously this time around, the things that suffered of office and retail. I am not a bull on office because I think the rents have been too high and I think that people's way of working is changing. Mm. And, you know, I don't believe we're going to work from home forever, but I do believe that we may be only going to visit the office maybe twice a week. Yeah. Okay, I think people have caught hold of they like the flex and they mm. like the flexibility. And if that's the case, pretty much everywhere around the world, we got too much office real estate. I mean, one of my biggest investments at the back end of last year was Venado Realty Trust, which is the biggest office property stock in New York. Okay, the stock looked really, really cheap at seventy. Okay, what had some now? fantastic developments and everything else. And of course, the world's changed. Yeah. So the stock's now thirty-three. Yeah. And you wouldn't touch it with a barge pole. New York's a particularly difficult market because it they're is. developing so much new stuff as uh, well. Yeah, and Donato's yeah. <laughs> the biggest developer of the new <laughs> oh, stuff no. as well. So, <laughs> so yeah, that's changed. One of the things I don't think has changed is shopping centre, okay? So the that short, is interesting. The mm. short term, yeah, absolutely, of course. You know, they're not in a good spot. But they've reinvented themselves to a degree already in pre-COVID because they've become more entertainment complexes. People actually like going shopping because it's a social activity. You and I have very different views on shopping. Yeah. <laughs> you don't not, shop regardless. I'm not, I'm not saying, I am not saying that you are not going to order, you know, a substantial amount more than you did mm. pre-COVID online. I accept that. But there's there's a certain element about actually going shopping, going visiting, having coffee. Most shopping centres have got a Coles or a Woolies in them, mm. okay, as you know, so they're, they're the key attractions. Some of the centres are going to get decimated because, you know, it is inevitable Maya will go broke. It's probably inevitable that David Jones will downsize, mm. depending on the South African parent, okay? So that's going to create some problems, but these things are real destinations, okay? Yeah. You know, they've got lots of other things in them. Now, what's the thing behind this story? If you look at a property trust, it's got, the value of the equity in the property trust, and they've all got some debt, okay? Now, with one exception, they've got a lot less debt than they did last time around. But what's happened, because the share prices of these things have all, not all, but a lot of them have caved in, is there are now three large-scale retail property trusts that you can buy which values the property that they own at around a 25 to 30% discount to its book value. Wow. 
Okay. Now I'm saying, sure, short term, yeah, you know, they've got Solomon Lou, you know, <laughs> kicking them up the bum yeah. saying, well, you know, we want to change the rental scheme and everything else. Obviously, some of them, they got shopping centers that are shut. Okay. But they will come back. They will bounce back. They will get tenanted up again. They're still getting about 80% of their rent. It's not too bad. They're paying their way. And with low debt, they're okay. So, you know, for example, to, you know, to give you, let's put some numbers around it and just give you a bit of an idea. Two of the biggest ones that are based in Australia are a company called Vicinity. Mm-hmm. Uh, the stock's, stock code's VCX. They got a market value of six and a half billion. They got debt of 3.7. So the total value of the market is ascribing to their assets is 10.2 billion. The value of the assets in the books is 14.3 billion. Wow. Okay. That's on about a 5.7% capitalization rate. I might just explain when you've taken the company's market cap and then added in the debt, that's a metric known as enterprise value. That is a metric known as enterprise value. Imagine the best way to conceive of it is imagine I want to take over REN. Okay. <laughs> so I pay so much equity for, for, for REN and I assume REN's debt on his house. So basically, if REN has a $1.1 million house, and he's got a million dollar mortgage, okay, then I might pay him 50 grand for his equity and I get in a bit cheap because I I get his $1.1 million house for $1.05 million, okay? So that's what we're looking at here. So what I'm saying is you can buy $14.3 billion of shopping centres for an effective value of just over 10, and that's about a 30% discount. Hey, guess what? That's where this whole sector was at its worst in March 2009. Centre Group, by the way, similar calculations, 12 billion of equity value, 14 of debt, 26 billion, the properties are worth 34, okay, according to the valuer. Now, I should tell you, Property trusts ply their valuers with very yeah. expensive <laughs> Japanese whiskey grand final, and grand final tickets and other things we can't talk about on a podcast. Uh, hey, now, allegedly. <laughs> now, <when laughs> allegedly, that's right. Okay, so that one's about a 25% discount. The best one, okay, okay. I'll say the best to last is the big kahuna of the lot. Centre Group, by the way, own Westfield in Australia. Okay, so that that's where, so Westfield Bondi Junction is Centre Group, it's not owned by anything called Westfield mm. anymore. What well, is owned by something called Westfield, okay, albeit part of a great big long company name called Unibail Redamco Westfield. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, Unibail's French, Redamco's Dutch, and Westfield's Dinky Dye. They own 56 billion euros of shopping centres around the world, you know, like US, Poland, mm. France, London, you know, they own the big things that Westfield built in London, yeah. you know, Stratford next to the Olympic Village, things like that. They own, they own the thing that Westfield, that Westfield built at near 9, the 9-11s. Absolutely, yeah, that's yeah. right, yeah. So they've got, they, they own, they own it's, it's 56 billion euros roughly of book value property. Now, you might think the book value is a nonsense because the stock market certainly does. These shares are down the best part of 80%. Wow. Okay. They're traded in Australia as a, as a, what's called a CDI, which is a, um, it's basically a depository instrument. So their real trade is in Europe. They've got an equity market value now down 80% of only 4.5 billion euros. Whoa. They've got 24 billion euros of debt which they're about to reduce because they're going to have a big equity issue. And so what it means is if we add 24 to 4 and a bit, we get 28 and a bit billion euros versus the property in the books at about 56 billion. So it's nearly, it's a 45% discount to the book value. Wow. I don't mind telling you, I've got to disclose, I have a shareholding in vicinity yep. and, and I have a much smaller shareholding because it's pretty obvious if the market thinks the equity is worth four and a bit billion uh, versus debt of 24, it's a bit risky. Mm. Uh, but I, ha- I do have a smaller position in Unibail as well. What's your time horizon on these though? Oh, 12 months, really? That's all. Okay. They don't, hey, imagine people start getting back. I mean, the. I mean, let's be blunt. One of the things about vicinity and why the discount's so big is because they've got 70 centres in Victoria, yeah. many of which are shut. I've got to say, if you think Victoria's going to open up and explode positively from an economic standpoint, it's probably the most obvious play you can find. So let me ask you, 
why the discount then? Because, you know, they're meaningful discounts. Absolutely. And it's not, you know, a discount to an expected future cash flow or something. No. It's, it's a discount to the value that a valuer is putting it's on put it. Is put on it. Absolutely. But you can do your own valuation if you want. You can create your own values for these things. There's really big professional REIT portfolio managers do that. They build, you know, they build out DCFs and spreadsheets to do it. So is the market expecting the value that the the properties are valued at to yeah, come down absolutely in line is. with that equity? Yeah, yeah it, it's expecting it to come down. And I mean, there are two or three things. I mean, first of all, they're expecting obviously distributions or dividends, if you will, from these REITs to be not, you know, not as good as they were previously. So you've got to price the equity down for that. Secondly, a lot of people are taking your standard view. Online shopping is going to kill <laughs> is going to kill offline. Yeah. Okay. I mean, we've all seen pictures of malls in the US, but they're more, you know, the US is a different demographic to Australia. There are so few major cities in the US, it's not funny. You know, they're big cities and not big. You know, I mean the fifth biggest city in the US barely existed in the nineteen forties and fifties. Phoenix. Right. Yeah. There you go. Why? It's in the middle of the desert. Yeah. Okay, and so whereas, you know, in Australia, what we've got, we've got these two behemoth cities, you know, Sydney and Melbourne, okay, and the whole point of shopping centres is clustering. You cluster shopping centres to create local monopolies, mm. you know, which is, you know, that was the Westfield model. You know, what do you think Westfield, I mean, so they got Bondi Junction. What's the next biggest shopping centre near to Bondi Junction? East Gardens. Isn't there one right next door to Bondi? Yeah, that's not big. That's <laughs> tiny. That's, that's small. <laughs> I was going to use another analogy there. <laughs> I halted my lip. It's a different setup yeah. in Australia. But, you know, yeah, it is. It's all about people saying offline shopping's dead. We're all we're all just sitting at computers and, and, and we don't shop online and there's going to be an ongoing decline and that rents are too high. Okay, that's the third mm. part of it, that rents are too high. Yes, they are. I agree with that. Okay, and Centre Group have not distinguished themselves in this. You know, trying to hold people to rental agreements through COVID, you know, without any give and take and no sense of, of trying to adhere in, in, in many cases to the sort of commercial agreements that Scott Morrison put out there, you know, whereas most other tenants have. You know, Centre Group have been hard and maybe too hard. Mm. Now, before we move to Trump, which I know Ren wants to, you did mention oil there, and I know you want to talk about Exxon uh, Mobil, but Andrew, you also did say in a text message before that you want to chat about the most infamous four numbers in an exchange ticker, 9984. Yeah. You will get a shock. Yes, and right. honestly, we had no idea what that meant, <laughs> and we didn't look it up because we wanted to be shocked. Yeah. <laughs> well, should we talk about oil first, let's, or should we talk about say, this? Yeah, let's just <laughs> do it all first. Obviously, ExxonMobil just got uh, booted out of the Dow Jones Industrial Index. You're basically in a situation now, because of the machinations in the oil price, really over the past two or three years, oil stocks have been obviously very poor performers. In many cases, they've been over distributors of dividends. In many cases, they've geared up to buy back stock. And Exxon certainly has been guilty of over distributing on the dividend. Uh, but what you're now left with is a situation where Exxon is likely to write down its reserves. One of the key things about an oil company is if the oil price is really low, so if the oil price is 40 bucks and you've got an oil field that's only really profitable at 50, mm. you can't book the reserves because you're never going to drill them. Yep. You're never going to drill them out. Quite clearly, if the oil price, if what you notice, you can see this, you know, go, go look at any oil company and your report. You know, if the oil price is 100 bucks a barrel, you know, all of a sudden their reserves expand dramatically, you know, because the areas that were marginal now become very profitable. So Exxon are likely to write their reserves down by about 20%. They've sort of flagged that but haven't done it yet. But even if you take that into account at the current market value of Exxon and adding in their debt, their net debt's actually quite small then you're paying about $8.50 for every barrel of oil in their reserve. That's pretty damn cheap. Mm. Okay, for, you know, one of one of the top, you know, four or five oil companies in the world. So it's a pretty interesting area to start, you know, looking across. So I own Exxon, but I also own something called IXC, which is the iShares Global Energy oh, yeah. ETF. Yeah. Okay, and the top three holdings in that are, of course, Exxon, Chevron, and Total, the French company. So, you know, oil's a really interesting counter-cyclical play. You've got to remember there's far more oil traded on financial markets than in reality. And 
that that's why oil moves a lot because you find traders go one way. If you find hedge funds are really short oil, just go go long because they get it wrong time after time <laughs> after. No, it's it's one thing they just get wrong time yeah, and right. time mm. again. Mm. And you know, if you can tell me why, well, you know, in the couple of days leading up to this podcast, oil was down six percent and then up six percent mm. because of Donald Trump. You know. <laughs> Makes no sense. Mm. I'm going to keep 9984 for later. Okay. 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 Uh, can I just ask one follow-up question about oil? So you were saying that Exxon's reserves are yeah. priced at about $8.50 yeah. a barrel in their share price. And for context, the West Texas in- intermediate oil price is around, what, 40 bucks a barrel? It's about, yeah, it's just slightly under 40 yeah. So what is leading to that? discount what's leading to that discount is is a few things first of all there have been some deliberate divestments of exxon stock based on basically green trends you know so you know for example one of the world's largest investors uh the norwegian sovereign wealth fund you know they've basically been divesting various fossil fuel stocks ironic that so much of that fund was built from From, fossil fuels (laughs) absolutely (laughs) correct and there are a number of other investors around the world who've taken a view on fossil fuels and so you know exxon goes they divest it secondly obviously at current oil prices you know the, the company is profitable at current oil prices but don't forget the last quarter they made a loss because the oil price you you might remember the infamous Day the oil price hit minus thirty seven. Yeah. We remember, yeah. <laughs> so you know they they obviously were hit with with a weak oil price then, and and they did lose money. So their earnings are obviously very very depressed at the moment as well. But I mean it's pretty well known. You you always buy you buy resource companies not when they're you know not when their product prices are very high. You buy them when the product prices are very low. Yeah. Uh, when they're barely making any money, and then obviously as the product price increases, that they are highly levered to most resource companies are highly levered to the product price because they have mm. fixed costs mm. of extracting whatever the product is, no matter it's gold or iron ore or oil or whatever. So, Andrew, Bryce keeps flagging it every time we move to a conversation <laughs> that I want to uh, talk about Trump. And obviously this last week has been a fascinating one because the President of the United States has got COVID and it appears that an event at the White House was a super spreader event and... Yep. A number of White House staffers and politicians have got COVID as well. Mm. I guess from a market's point of view, how have markets responded and, and how do you expect them to respond to some of the you know different range of outcomes? Sure. One of the obvious things to me is that the, the market obviously fell quite sharply when it became clear that Trump had COVID and then it's, it, it's bounced quite sharply. There's some different questioning as to why it's bounced quite sharply, and I certainly tend to probably the minority view. I think that a second Trump presidency would be inexorably bad for stock markets. And the reason why is because he will probably, uh, you know, he won't have an overall majority. There's no way the Republicans will hold, you know, the House and the Senate. But with, with the second uh, presidency, I, I think quite bluntly, Trump will go mad. <laughs> And yeah. and will you know the more extreme components of his makeup will come to the surface, and I think that will be horrendous because you, just think about what you've had in his first presidency. I mean, you you've had horrendous trade disruption between the U.S. and China. Now I make no you know I make no comment on the politics of that. There may you know there are rationales for it and uh, others that are not. You've had a complete desertion by Trump of his friends in Europe. Mm. Okay, so you know, the U.S. coalition in Europe is very weak indeed, and I think that, as I say, I think a second Trump presidency would bring that to extremes, which would have much more impact on stock markets because the first one basically was, you know, was was driven by a big tax cut, you know, that added sort of twelve dollars plus to S and P five hundred earnings as a one off. So, quite frankly, I was a bit surprised that the, the market was worried that Trump had COVID on Friday and fell to the degree it did. Whereas I think a, a Biden presidency, you know, notwithstanding he's old and people are frightened, you know, rigid that it becomes a Carmilla Harris presidency. Mm-hmm. So I, I acknowledge that risk. But Biden's going to be really much more straight down the middle. And so you're actually going to get a return, I think, to much more sensible equity market conditions that do not get driven you know, by, oh, we, you know, we're kind of negotiating with China. Yeah, the amount of inside information that's gone on, yeah, and the amount of leaks that have driven markets and have driven them to, 
you know, two, three, four percent gains in a day, you know, and you sort of think, what's going on? You know, and it's, it's a Trump tweet or something. So I think we're going to get rid of that. And I think that's going to, generally going to be good for markets. I think there's going to be a lot less unpredictability. You know, Biden's going to be fairly predictable. And I happen to think that's good for business and it's good for earnings. And I think over a period of time, Biden will actually be good for stock markets, much better than Trump. You will have to get over the hurdle of the fact that the likelihood is that the corporate tax rate will go back up. And it wouldn't be surprising if the Democrats started to put some measures in place to uh, basically equalise the US society by taking away money from multi-zillionaires and mm. redistributing it elsewhere. Mm. So that you may think, well, it's bad for markets. It's actually not bad for markets. Yeah, potentially increases the consumption yeah. from a lower middle class. Absolutely right. So my view certainly is that if COVID is derailing Trump's campaign, which inevitably it is because it's derailing some of the people that are helping him, if it means, and, and certainly the betting markets are, are saying that Biden's chances have strengthened dramatically over the last week, I actually think over sort of a two to three year period, I think that's a good thing. Yeah, I, you know, quite frankly, on a, on a personal note, because of the impact that he has and because of his unpredictability, I don't think I could stand another four years of Trump yeah. as an investor. Yeah. Well, they always say that the presidential second term is a little looser because they never have to answer to voters again. Absolutely yeah. right. And, and yeah, this is a guy who's been pretty loose in his first term. <laughs> yeah. So, wow. Yeah, and I just think for American society as well, quite frankly. So, Just one more question about COVID more generally. Obviously, we're entering a period where you know, different states in the US have different policies, but yep. also just more generally across the world, we're seeing a real fragmenting in oh, yeah. how different countries are responding and their different COVID statuses. Yep. And, and, you know, financial markets and just international trade is so interconnected, but mm. COVID is, there's just a lot of different responses uh, going on. How, how do you think about that? One of the most interesting things is that if, if you look at what we would typically call emerging markets and Asia, I heard a great comment this morning. If you take the Pacific Rim, which is kind of China, Japan, Malaysia, Singapore, sort of Oz, uh, there's less than a thousand cases a day. Wow! Across that uh, uh, the current stage, whereas you know you've got seven thousand in London. Mm. So COVID's a real European issue. Why? Because you've got no boundaries. You, know, you can move through Europe with alacrity, and and that's the problem. And so you get spreading, and that's been very much the case in the US as well. And so I think what's clear, even though you've had a big increase in, in COVID cases in Europe and in the US more recently, the death rates are much lower. Yeah. And there's, there's a lot of good reasons for that. Um, you know, drugs, the treatment, the ability to treat, the knowledge about it. Maybe there's a little bit of immunity, you know, whatever it is. So the death rates are lower. And so what's going to happen is these countries are going to really come out and say, forget it, you're going to have to live with it. Because if they if they shut down again, and they're starting to, I mean that's real that's that's really bad for the economy. How do you know that? Well, look at Victoria. We reopened and then we shut down again. Okay, and yeah, Australia's been you know I sort of find it a bit incredible now. You know, we're we're almost having reporters sort of parked outside. You know, kind of like wow, well, there's you know we we think Wren may have COVID, <laughs> so you know he goes live to our reporter Bryce outside. You know, <laughs> oh Wren's temperatures up a little bit. To, you know, it, it's it's down to that level seriously, yeah. which is stupid. And we we're now starting to over damage our economy with border closures and everything else. We've got to open it up and accept the fact that it's going to come back, but we know how to treat it now. Back in February, we didn't know enough about it. We know heaps about it now. Yes, we'll eventually get it, you know, we may get a vaccine. Don't forget, vaccines are hard to come by, as as we've seen. Mm. But I think, we, you know, these countries are going to have to learn to live with it. Mm. It's. I mean, we, we're all obviously all speaking in Sydney and uh, we, Bryce and I, live near a cluster that broke out and yeah. I was really impressed by how quickly... All these resources were pushed into the area. So much testing. They shut some places down and they contained it. And then you know, that, a lot of that's eased now. Got a, I got that, ISO'd because I went to Apollo for my birthday. <laughs> oh, and, uh, so, did, so did somebody with COVID. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I got ISO'd for nine days effectively. It was brilliantly done, i got to yeah, tell you. It was yeah. amazing. I was, you know, I've never been so impressed with bureaucracy in <laughs> yeah, my life. Yeah, yeah. Really. And I feel like that's the situation where it becomes manageable to open yeah. it up. And like, because I worked with a whole lot of people in Victoria who were pretty mm. down on the whole thing. And yeah. it's like, there is a way out of it to... Yeah, the economic damage at some stage starts to overwhelm. 
you know, from closure overwhelms the, you know, the damage of COVID itself, particularly if you isolate nursing homes and things like that, mm. you do sensible stuff. So, yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, I've been to Canberra recently and, you know, what's COVID? Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the place is pretty much open, but it's so just, it's, it's just changed behaviour. It's about booking in. Yeah, yeah. you've got to book stuff now, you know. Yeah, yeah so, you got to sign like in. That. They need a better way to do the sign-in thing as well. That's really <laughs> annoying every time. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, they're yeah. minor gripes. Buy Now, Pay Later has been teased. Yes. And love hearing your thoughts on Buy Now, Pay Later. You, last time we had you on the show, you were very strong about Afterpay. And yeah. I guess... Well, I'm, quote here, the stupidest speculative boom in years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It is. <laughs> so I'm not even going to ask a question. Just yeah. uh, It's crazy. Let's, let's start with that quote and see yeah. where it goes. <laughs> okay. Let's look at one thing. Buy Now, Pay Later is one component of the fact that the great banking oligopoly of Australia is unravelling, okay? Let's get that absolutely clear. There is a role for buy now, pay later in Australia and elsewhere around the world, to be fair as well, okay? And it's a simple part of the fact that that basically millennials don't have a relationship with a traditional bank by and large. You know, I have three kids, they all have accounts with ING, which is not a traditional bank in, in Australia. It might be in Holland, but it's not here. Mm. Okay. And so they have no affinity with a bank. You know, the old days of wearing a collar and tie and introducing little Johnny to the bank manager <laughs> is, is well, well and truly over. And don't forget, BNPL is not the only part of that. Yeah, one of the interesting things is that certainly in very, very recent times, there's been quite big moves in the mortgage broking stocks. So Mortgage Choice, which was absurdly cheap a few weeks ago, it's bounced hard. Uh, Australian Finance Group, AFG, and then even some of the smaller ones. Why? Because basically, you know, 50 to 60% of loans in Australia now are organised through a mortgage broker because there are so many different sources of money, okay? And then when you think about the fact that big money suppliers, you know, like the KKRs and the Blackstones of the world, are coming into this and you've got mortgage-backed securities in, in the market here as well. Yeah, the traditional banks basically are sort of now being left bereft, okay, uh, because you guys don't have a relationship with them. You don't necessarily want one either and you get your mortgage organised if you want one by a mortgage broker. You're quite happy to take credit from some other source and BNPL is just another one of those components. The issue with BNPL is it tends to appeal to lower socioeconomic groups, by and large, people that can't afford to go any other way. There are some smart other people, and don't forget, after pay, you know, forever, show you, oh, you know, we're not sort of, you know, we're not just tendering to people who don't have a lot of money. We've actually got some affluent customers. Yeah, and that's because they arbitrage their credit card. Mm. Okay? You can arbitrage your credit card on BNPL very easily. So... There is a role for it. Let me get that clear. Let me also get clear, particularly in the case of Afterpay and I think ZipPay as well, these companies are really well run, okay? You know, there's, there's no question. I mean, the way Afterpay's been built is, is, is phenomenal. Their marketing is unbelievable, okay? It is absolutely fabulous, okay? But the question is, is it worth $24 billion at the current stage of development? And the answer, in my opinion, is categorically not. Mm. They're starting to cheat a bit as well, which... And when I say no, no, no. (laughs) When I say cheat, it's in terms of the marketing and the way that they're trying to get the investment community to look at them. Okay, and that usually raises bells in in my mind. Can you be a bit specific? I will be very specific. Okay, great. Okay. <laughs> I'll be extremely specific. I mean, if you don't want to throw allegations, no, but, no, no. You, know, you love no. throwing bombs. No. <laughs> Most interestingly, so it, on the nineteenth of August, uh, they gave an update, and they said their EBITDA for the year ending June 30, twenty twenty. Previous guidance was twenty to twenty five million, and they said we've upgraded that to forty four million. And so the stock obviously went up very, very sharply on the back of that, despite the fact it was already capitalised at, you know, yeah. the teens of billions, all right? So just think about how much you're valuing the extra $20 million at. But anyway, so then when the report comes out, they make $44 million of, of, of sort of company-stated EBITDA, which excludes significant items, which they'd specified. And I've got to say, the, the release on the 19th of August was really carefully worded. That's perfectly legal. They did not say anything in that that was in any way misleading. You had to go to the footnotes to make sure you check that out. 
And then once you find the 44 million, uh, that's sort of reported before significant items. And then the significant items are 30 million of costs in share-based payments, 6.4 million of one-offs, which include such one-offs as international expansion costs. Why are you investing in this country? Because it's expanding internationally. You know, it's like, that's not a one-off cost. Mm. And that's a, that's, mm. that's a part of doing business. The rental bit, you know, because of the changed accounting, don't forget. So that's not afterpay's issue. It's just change accounting. So there's 5.3 million of rent not included in that. They capitalised $41 million worth of software expenses that weren't included in that. So by the time we got to statutory EBITDA of 24 million, down from 44, uh, between the two is also a 20 million foreign exchange gain. So 20 million of the 24 million of EBITDA was a foreign exchange gain, and then they say no rent, you know, because that's a different part of the game, and uh, capitalised software of 41 million. So on my numbers, they actually made a 41 million dollar loss. <laughs> well, <laughs> now that's 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 what I call cheating in inverted commas. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's basically every company to a degree does it. You massage the numbers yeah. to get the stock market to look at what you want them to look at. Yeah. And Afterpay is no different to you know the other two thousand listed companies. It's just that you know w when you see a big stock price reaction, and then when the result comes out and you look in the detail, you kind of go. Hang on a second. So this company's actually making a this this company's making what would in any terms be a cash flow loss. Okay. It's valued at $24 billion. Okay. It's got a great position in its domestic market and now it's going overseas. I believe, you know, categorically that economies are going to struggle, okay? Because, you know, as government support gradually is weaned off. You know, we know a lot about it in Oz. You know, I believe their bad debts are going to rise. I believe there's significant competition. You know, we've seen that. Remember the PayPal announcement? Yep. So, you know, I just believe that the market capitalizations of these companies are miles too big relative to where they're actually at, okay? Do I discredit the company? No. Do I discredit their product? No. There is a role for it, but it's a very competitive product. Are Afterpay the best of the bunch? Probably, but they still have that significant regulatory risk that mm. some others don't, you know, because of the credit check issue. And, you know, are they the most overpriced of the bunch? Probably yes in nominal terms, you know, in terms of dollars. But, yeah, there, there are some other buy now, pay later stocks that, you know, I just think, uh, you know, will do extremely well to avoid bankruptcy, yeah. quite frankly. Yeah, you know, Afterpay will, you know, have no issues on that score because, you know, there's enough cult followers to, you know, put $786 million into it after the 30th of June. So your play is to go short? I have a small short position in Afterpay. It is a cult company, which is why it's got a $24 billion mm. market valuation, just like Tesla's a cult company. Mm. You know, there's no you, there's no rhyme nor reason why the valuations are where they are, mm. but you've got to accept they're cults, and therefore to have a large short position now would be silly. Mm. And I do have a small short position in ZipPay as well. I've had short positions in other smaller buy now pay later companies, and there's one in particular I won't discuss because you know I think it's nigh on fraudulent, wow. and, and you know basically the stock flies around a fair bit. Um, and it, it's recently fallen fairly sharply, but now picking up again. And I think there's another bit of scope, you know, to have another short position, which mm. we might discuss it. Well, a lot to think about for those that are in that it's cult. competition. <laughs> do you, do you want to give not, the bull uh, case price? For afterpay. As an afterpay cult member, as a card-carrying member? I mean, to be honest, my only bull case at the moment is just to continue the riding the wave of everyone getting into afterpay. <laughs> <Fair> <laughs> I've enough. sold 50% of my stock, so... Yeah. It is, um, you know, let's yeah. let's let you know, let's make it clear. This this is this is a real business. Mm. There is a real role for it, and they run and they've built it brilliantly. I have absolutely no quibble with you know, management or anything other than the fact that I think they're starting to sort of tweak the number. You know, yeah. they're starting to push their version of the numbers a bit aggressively. Mm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they created a category. Like, yeah. I know yeah, there was absolutely. label and stuff before, but there wasn't really. Like, they've by now pay later. They led the charge on. Yeah. 
So to close out, Andrew. Wow, we've got 9984. 9984. Yeah, yeah, we've been waiting all day. Infamous four numbers in an exchange ticker. We will get a shock. You'll get a shock. 9984 is the Tokyo Stock Exchange ticker for SoftBank Group Corporation. Okay. Okay. Not to be confused with SoftBank Corporation. Uh, there are two, okay? SoftBank Corporation is controlled by SoftBank Group Corporation. So SoftBank Group is obviously the top company in the in in the pyramid. It's the one that Masuyosa San owns 27% of. It's the one that's got the vision fund that had the yeah. WeWork in and everything else. It's the one that, that aggressively bought call options over a whole yeah. bunch of US technology stocks in, in August and seemingly made an awful lot of money out of it. Uh, we won't go into the machinations because we'll be here all night. Despite my questioning of tech valuations, and I have a number of small shorts in SaaS companies in the US, about 10 separate short positions. All Salesforce, one of them? No, it's not. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Ex- examples are things like Splunk, DocuSign. Okay, yeah. Um, I have a very sure, small short in Zoom, which which is about valuation. The valuation's crazy. The product's really good. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. and, but the valuation's bonkers. So there, there's a few others. But one of my counteractions to that is, in fact, I have a long position in SoftBank. Right. Okay. Which sounds absurd because, obviously, uh, you know, Mashiosa-san, you know, sort of acted like a bit of a maniac for a long <laughs> period of time. But the degree to which SoftBank basically of trying to de-gear and de-lever their balance sheet is phenomenal. The asset sales they've made are phenomenal. They've made them at good prices. And the thing that tipped me over the edge to go is the fact that they've, they're selling ARM, which is a UK-based chip manufacturer, to NVIDIA for 40 billion US dollars, which is not a big return on what they paid for it. Round about basically three quarters of that holding rests in SoftBank, the other quarters in the Vision Fund. And it helps to keep de-gearing SoftBank. My estimate of SoftBank's net asset value is around about 14,000 yen plus, And the current stock price is 6,900. And it got wow. as low as 2,800, I've got to tell you. And you've got around about 10,500 yen a share of SoftBank is, is their stock holding in Alibaba. So if you're a bear on Alibaba, don't go near this. Mm, but mm. It's, it's a really interesting hedge for me to some of the other things that, that I'm short. And um, you know, it, the way they're de-gearing and also they've alluded to the fact that they might look to go private. And there's some rationale behind going private uh, so Mashiosa-san can get off the pills and (laughs) go as wild as he wants. Isn't that a a risk, though, if they go private and the share price is around 7,000 yen... Even if the net asset value is at that fourteen thousand number, yeah, you may the, not you may not get the whole NAV. Yeah, 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 yeah. They've had Elliott Management on their register, you know, who, oh, okay. who yeah. did help play a role. Big activist, big fund. big activist yeah. fund. They're the guys that got on BHP. They're the guys who tried to unwind Hyundai and mm. things like that. So yeah, it's been really interesting. I think I mean basically he's obviously going to settle down. He sold assets for a little while. Look, he'll go through another wave of of things that make you uncomfortable, but maybe that will be when he's private. So. Why do I bring that up? Two reasons. One is just so you don't think I'm a bear on everything <laughs> technology. But secondly, I think it just underpins, you know, perhaps a lot of what we've been talking about tonight, yeah. which is we've been talking about how do you buy assets really cheaply in a world where many, many assets are fundamentally overvalued? Are there any cheap assets left with stock markets where there are? Absolutely there are. Mm. So sure, you know. Melbourne shopping centres that are currently closed may not be your cup of tea. <laughs> Big oil may not be your cup of tea for a variety of other things, but maybe uh, maybe a mad Japanese, Japanese entrepreneur <laughs> in, the, in the tech space might, at, at, at half asset backing. Sounds like oh, that's up my alley. He has he has debt, okay, and it's a really complex company. Mm. So if you want to uh, if you want to go analyse it yourself, take a week off work. <laughs> so just to recap on those numbers, so you. You said the the stock price was seven thousand yen. It's or about sixty nine hundred yen at the moment. The net yeah. asset value was fourteen thousand yen. In my estimation, okay, and that other people will give you different numbers. But of that fourteen thousand yen, around ten thousand yen was just in stock of Alibaba. That is correct. 
Jeez, that's a pretty concentrated bet. So for, it's, it's, yeah. yeah. Well, you've got to remember he was Long the Alibaba. first. He was one of the first external investors in Alibaba, and he just let it grow. He and sold some along the way. Does that because SoftBank is a Japanese telco at the end of the day? Isn't Correct, it? Nat. Yeah. So, so does that does that net asset value include their whole telco business? Yeah. As well? What it what it does is basically Jeez, <laughs> what what I've what I've done is I've deconsolidated SoftBank Group Corporation's balance sheet, and obviously they are the largest shareholder in SoftBank Corporation, which is the telecom oh, okay, company. Okay. okay. They also have a major shareholding in what's called Z Holdings, previously called Yahoo Japan. Yeah. And there's there's a bit of telco in there as well. And then of course they've got another telco, which is they recently merged Sprint, which way they were the majority owner of, with T Mobile in the US, and they've got a bunch of T Mobile stock, which basically they're they're getting out of through some quite complex derivative transactions. There's nothing easy in this. Company. No, I this sounds like it. a highly complex. Oh, company. It is. <laughs> this is this is this is MBA material. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you know they're the main things, and then they own basically a chunk of the Vision Fund, but they have obligations to the other investors in Vision Fund, which are the Saudis in particular, mm. and they have to pay them a preferred return. Okay, so they are leveraged to the returns of the Vision Fund, which is why the stock went down so badly because, of course, they were leveraged to the returns of WeWork. Yeah. <laughs> which are negative. Well, it wasn't just WeWork. I mean, WeWork no. was the big one, but they threw a lot of money at a lot of companies. Mm. Their, their mm. thesis was go if for it. You oh. give one company in the sector so much more capital, they'll kill everyone else. Yeah. yeah. Basically, what they were doing is it, it's kind of like, you know, Hey, Ren, I'll get you going. I'll I'll buy 10% of Ren for $10. Yeah. Okay. And then and then we say, right, we'll buy the next 10% of Ren for $20,000. Yeah. You know, and we so, need to talk to them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that, that's really, I mean, in essence, that's what they were doing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, I mean, I, I don't mind telling you, there is some unadulterated crap in my point, in, in my view, in the vision fund. Yeah. Okay. At, at crazy valuations. Okay. And stuff that won't make money or stuff that when it comes to public markets, they have to take a write down on. Mm. So, I mean, obviously, you know, Uber was, you know, one that came to public markets. They obviously have a big stake in DD uh, mm. as well. Mm. So, I mean, they've, they've, they've sort of covered off every rideshare thing that you can cover off. I wish they'd cover off on A to B, otherwise known as cab charge, because it's way cheaper than <laughs> any of them. Still on cab charge. It's a payments company now, Bryce, don't you know? <laughs> My favourite SoftBank Vision Fund investment, and I'm, we're not just trying to beat up on this investment, but I love this story. They invested $300 million in a dog walking That's startup correct. called Absolute, WAG. Absolutely <laughs> right. Have, yeah. a, have a guess if they made money or lost money on that investment. Mm, let me guess. <laughs> yeah, they've already realised. Yeah, yeah, they've written it down. Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah, there's some, you know, if you said to me, kind of like, this guy's a bit out there, surely, <laughs> you know, and, and justify this and justify that, the answer is I couldn't. Mm. What I'm looking at now is in, is in an environment where he's divesting assets at not too bad a prices. I mean, you can't justify the price he paid for ARM in the UK. No way. It was nuts. When I had, you know, when I was running my spreadsheet on SoftBank a year ago, you know, I had ARM written down dramatically from, mm. from what they're now going to sell it to NVIDIA for. So that's that's why, you know, in, in each of these things there's a catalyst. And you know, I should say the stock's gone up pretty pretty sharply over the last few months mm. at the end of the day and like all jokes aside about vision funds bad investment like the the thesis that you have there that you're buying you know fourteen thousand yen for six thousand nine hundred yen like that yeah. is that is classic value investing yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. which is which is why you've seen value investors in it which sounds crazy mm. and it's it, you know it's all about you know can you justify the fourteen thousand yen that's where you're that's where your homework comes yeah. in. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's actually getting to, I mean, in, in SoftBank, it's actually getting to understand what they actually own yeah. to start <laughs> with. But there you go. But, you know, hopefully that gives you, you know, a few clues that there are a lot of value things out there. You can buy a lot of stuff that's pretty cheap. You know, in, in Australia, obviously, you know, our index is probably being held back by the fact that, you know, a quarter of it's in banks and, you know, they've still probably got a rough patch to go through, you know, mm. bad debts and, cramp margins and, and everything else. Well, if we really are in April 2000, uh, we may see a decade of value outperforming growth. And if that's the case, we look forward to 
continually getting you back on the show to to hear you crowing about it all. <laughs> I, I never I never crow because once you start crowing, there's a car accident around the corner. So <laughs> it's very humbling investment markets. Just when mm. you think you've got them nailed, uh, they nail you. <laughs> so there you go. Well, Andrew, you always leave us with a lot to think about. So thank you again for yeah, absolutely giving your time to come on the show. Not a problem. We look forward to, what are we, October now. So yeah. we'll be coming up on our Bold Predictions recap true, episode true, yeah. reasonably soon. I have come in, I think, from one of, one of the Bold Predictions last time. I think we, we did chat quite extensively about baby bunting last time. And yes. I am coming in on the day that baby bunting had their annual general meeting and put forward some pretty good new sales numbers. They've been very conservative, won't give forecasts for the year, which mm. is which is understandable, but you know, I think the stock got as low as one eighty and it's now, you know, it's 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 not far off five bucks. So, mm. Wow. Um, you know, and it, it is you know, it, it's a phenomenal business that, that mm. any kind of part time MBA student should be able to work out as a phenomenal business. Mm. Yeah. So uh, there you go. Well we can touch on that in a couple of months, but again, thank you as always. Pleasure. Good to have you on. Absolutely. I've thoroughly enjoyed it as usual. And so happy hunting out there, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for listening to Equity Mates Investing Podcast, a production of Equity Mates Media. Please remember that everything you hear in Equity Mates Investing Podcast is general advice only. The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances, or goals. The host of Equity Mates Investing Podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.